Alrighty, good morning. That was utterly weak. We have people here who have the ability to speak. We don't have many people, but they are here. So good morning. Good morning. All right, there we go. Guys, I'm sad that we're not together, that we're not in the same place for this day, but it is an act of love. Uh, we, as we understand our call to love our neighbor, and we're seeking uh, the good of our neighbors and those who are sick in our midst in this season, praying that we'll be together again soon, because this isn't the way it should be. Technology is a gift, but it's nowhere near as good as being together. And so, if you could, uh, turn with me in your Bibles, and we'll do the best we can. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews, or pardon me, Hebrews, to uh, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. You can start in verse 5. But as we're going there, I, I just, I sort of laugh at myself because as I was thinking about the Advent sermon series, as I was thinking about, you know, what I would offer to you all from God's word in this season as we prepare again for the story of Christmas and our Savior's coming, I was thinking originally of going back to the beginning of Matthew and the genealogy and telling the story of the women that were in Jesus's genealogy. Terrible stories of, of brokenness and sin, but also of redemption. But as I went and prepared for that last month, I realized, ooh, this is so dark. This is so difficult. I don't want to take the church throughout all of that and just leave them depressed. I don't know if I could dig them out of that hole. And so I decided instead to tell this covenant story of hope, of God's incredible grace in relationship with humankind from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Christ. And yet, last week, here I am telling the story of the fall of humankind, and this week, telling the story of the flood and Noah. So perhaps I'm just dour by nature, but um, Lord have mercy on us as we walk into this. As, as, as we think about the story of the flood, this story of, of a judgment, God's judgment against sinful human beings who were rebelling against his purpose and harming one another in terrible, wicked ways, as we think about that story of judgment, it, it naturally, and I think rightfully in many ways, causes us to just feel like the wind is knocked out of us. It's like, oh, a story of judgment. As I've prepared for this this week, I've been thinking about how on earth can I offer this and hopefully point you to the hope of Christmas, even in this season. Well, this story of judgment is a part of this story of hope. Many of us wonder how on earth that could fit in. But, but as I think about how to get into this with you, I think of all of the world's violence, all of the world's wickedness, and the headlines that we see. Many of us have, have been scrolling it, maybe a little bit too much in the past year. We may even give ourselves to doom scrolling, and we just see all of the problems in the world. I remember when I was, I think, in middle school, uh, the United States had entered into conflict in Iraq, and I remember a fellow student comes to me at that time. And what was wrong with the world from his perspective was the Middle East. The Middle East is what's wrong with the world from his mid-American young boy perspective. This is what we need to do. He would say, if we would take care of the problems in the world, and he said these words, we should just blow away the Middle East. Just blow it away. I remember that statement. I remember being kind of shocked by it. Even seventh grade or so boy that I was, that he would say this. But I think this is reflective of many of us. We've already talked about this tendency. If we were asked, what is wrong with the world? What is really the problem here? 
Many of us would point to someone elsewhere, some group of people elsewhere, some geographical location other than where I live, even if it's just across the street or across the state line. We'll point elsewhere and say, they're the problem. If God would just wipe them out, then we could have a fresh start. Then it'll all be okay. But the Bible sees things differently. The Bible is more like this. G.K. Chesterton, he was invited to write for a newspaper, an editorial, in response to the question, what is wrong with the world? And he decides to respond. He sits down and he writes, Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. What is wrong with the world? It's right here. There's something wrong right here. And it's in me. The Bible calls it sin. It's our, it's our failure and our lack of desire to live as God's image bearers, to reflect him in his world, to ignore him in his world. I am the problem, G.K. Chesterton said. But if we acknowledge that that's the problem, then when we think of the solution for the problem, it may get a little bit scary because the problem isn't just over in the Middle East. It's not just across the street. It's not Republicans. It's not Democrats. It's, it's not just those people, whoever those people are, another denomination of Christianity, LGBT people. The problem is not those people. The problem is right here. I am the problem, sin in me. And so as we live in a world and we believe we live in a world that God has made and that God is preserving in his kindness and grace and power, if we live in his world, we're hoping that he has a good solution, that he's a kind of God that would have the character to come up with a good solution, a wise solution, a faithful solution, a righteous solution. Actually, there's stories of judgment and of a flood elsewhere in the ancient Near East, not just in the story of the Bible. In fact, the story of the Bible probably is interacting with some of those stories and telling the true accounting. There's the Babylonian story of Atrahasis, which was then, it was adapted and polished to become the Epic of Gilgamesh. And in that story, you have Babylonian gods and they are lazy and they're tired of doing work and feeding themselves. So they create human beings to go and do all their work. But then the humans become noisy and they complain. They do what people do. And so the gods become annoyed after a while and they say, oh no, enough. We're just gonna wipe them all out with a flood. But there was one God who sneaks over and tells Gilgamesh what he's about to do. And so Gilgamesh goes and makes this cubic shaped boat. And so humanity survives. That's the epic of Gilgamesh. But you can see in this story that these gods are just knee jerk reacting. They're like a middle school boy being asked what is wrong with the world? Well, it's, it's other things, it's other people. It's the, these annoyances and out of a knee jerk, these gods decide to destroy. And out of a mistake, it's a mistake that humanity would live in their story. In the, the true story of the one true and living God, God isn't like that. It's no mistake that we're still here. And it wasn't out of a knee jerk, immature reaction that he brought about judgment. In fact, the Lord is the one who made all things and made them good. What does it say in Genesis 
chapter one, after every time he makes something, the Lord saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. After all of the days of creation, the Lord rested from all his work that he had made and saw that it was all very good. But what does he see now? In Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Humankind that he created in his own image to reflect his goodness in the world. Humankind that he didn't erase after Adam's first sin, but who he gave a promise. In Genesis 3.15, that he would send an offspring to crush the head of the serpent that tempted them to fall in the first place. The Lord who had been gracious and kind, who had clothed Adam and Eve, even on their way out of the garden in their sin. Humanity continually turned against God. And we see Adam's son Cain committing murder. We see the grandchildren of Cain, ultimately Lamech, who kills a man for wounding him. The cycle of violence. If someone ever wrongs me, if someone even does better than me at something, I'd be willing to kill them. And that is becoming to be the story of human, humanity. It's not a story where God is the main character. It's a story where I'm the main character and I do what I want and thumb my nose at the one who made me. But there was this righteous line of people who looked to God, we find. From Adam's son, Seth, and his son, Enosh, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, and we see people like Enoch who walk with God. And from their line, the Lord graciously would bring up this one Noah. And that's where our story would begin. But I want to ask you today, do you think that judgment is the end of the story? When you think of your Christian faith, when you think of this story, is judgment the end of it? No. 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 In this story of hope, judgment is never the end of the story because God has committed himself to his covenant of grace. He has committed himself to this world and to his people. But nevertheless, we have many questions when we come to judgment. It's, it's such a visceral, deeply troubling thing when we think about a story like the story of the flood. And we might find ourselves saying to God, why? How could you do this? Who do you think you are, God? How dare you? If that's you today, I can totally understand that feeling. Many, many, many people, ancient, modern, of all cultures have wondered this kind of a thing. Why? Well, there's, of course, this irony that we see here. We see that God was actually bringing rest to the world through this judgment. Noah's name means rest. He was coming to bring rest to the world. Rest from what? From us. From our sin. Because humanity had filled the world with wickedness. We see that in the account of the Nephilim in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, right before this account. This odd, sort of mysterious group of people, fallen ones, perhaps fallen angels, who have come and wickedly interspersed among people, people who would take, violently take women, misuse women. So we're seeing murder, we're seeing the misuse of human beings made in God's image, in God's world. And the Lord was grieved in heart at all this. It says in verse six, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so 
the Lord said that I will blot out man. Like a stain, sin has become upon the world. So I'll blot humankind out. And all the men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. The Lord was grieved in heart, the scriptures say. And this is a mystery. It takes us into one of those mysterious tensions of the Bible where we have two things that are absolutely true. First of all, it's absolutely true that God is what the old timers call immutable, immutable. He's unchangeable. He's what James 1.17 says. He is the father of lights in whom there is no variation due to change. He is Exodus 3, the burning bush. He is the I am. He is the eternal, the unchangeable, the absolutely unique, the independent I am. He is you could get in his face and you could shout and you could slander all you want and he would be stone cold, unmoved. Have you ever seen a picture like that? People surrounding somebody, trying to provoke somebody, but stone cold, they're unmoved. Their posture unchanged. This is the way God is. He doesn't react like a middle school boy. He acts out of his divine will, out of his divine justice and his divine love. He reveals himself as he chooses to in his time. And yet, there's this mystery. At the same time, the Lord interacts meaningfully with us. He's a relational God, this unchangeable one who we can't grasp with our minds. O. Palmer Robertson writes of this. This statement here in Genesis 6-5, it in no way implies that God erred in creating man or that he was caught by surprise over the development of sin but it does indicate that God responds meaningfully to developing circumstances in human history. So we see both of these things being true. God reveals himself as a father who cares and who responds and who defends his world. And yet at the same time, we know he's unchangeable. He's not just overreacting or flying off the handle. Romans 1.18 says that God's wrath is revealed. God is all sorts of beautiful and true attributes in perfect proportion all at once, love and justice and mercy and truth and wrath against all that is against his character. And as he chooses to in his time, he reveals his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity, all of it. And here we see a picture in Genesis 6 through 8 of how he historically revealed that wrath. He would blot out the stain of sin-cursed life. And everything outside the ark would die. We see that in verse 11 of chapter 7, reading onward, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. It's like wrath revealed from heaven. This terrible power of God unleashed upon the world. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They along with all the beasts that the Lord had appointed to bring with them. But we find below the flood continued in verse 18, the waters prevailed, increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. 
The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all humankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. Many of us uh, who read this, and, and historically, even among the ancients, Folks have read this and wondered, is this really talking about a regional flood or a global flood? Is this really all the earth? Well, certainly the first thing we have to say is as we read this, it pictures a global judgment. The waters rise high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters, of, of the waters 15 cubits above the highest of the mountains. And it says, all flesh that moved on the earth died. The word for earth can also be rendered land. And so some readers have suggested this could be a regional, a regional flood. Even so, and these are many earnest Christians with us, so I have no judgment against these ones. But even so, we have to acknowledge that Jesus himself, in Matthew 24, Peter, in 2 Peter chapters 2 and 3, speak of the flood as a pattern for God's future global worldwide judgment. This is a picture, this is a revelation of the wrath that's stored up for those who turn against God in rebellion, who wickedly show forth a false image to the world of who he is and refuse to show his image as we're called to do. And then we come back to this moment as human beings and we say, how dare God do this? How could he do this? But I think of a time I was playing golf. And as I was playing golf, it was a really bad day of golf, which is most days of golf for me. It's the 18th hole. And so I, I hit off the tee. The first shot is bad. It's off to the left behind a tree. I managed to have a halfway decent second shot. So I hit it, but it was a pretty strong slice to the right. As I go forward, it's par four. I still have some hope I can get on the green in three. And I realize my ball is actually rolled across out of bounds into somebody's yard. And so I'm walking up there and there's a clear difference. There's the golf course, rough grass, and there's this person's backyard grass, which was really lush and thick, which is terrible when you're playing golf. Very thick grass. But I'm kind of in a huff, I'm frustrated with myself, and I'm just thinking, I'm just gonna hit the ball. So I just, I go and I, I hit the ball. It's against the rules. Anybody who plays golf would know that. Basically, I'm trespassing on this person's yard. And so, I won't tell you how many shots it took me to get on the green, but I get there, and around that time, a man comes riding up in a golf cart, red-faced, angry, and he's yelling at me. He's letting me have it. What were you doing in my yard? You know, in on. And I'm in my heart at that moment. I was kind of like upset. Who does this guy think he is? You know, I'm, I'm just out playing golf. I'm just keeping to myself. What's your problem, man? You know, I think I might have mustered a quiet sorry. But later I, I was thinking back on this moment and realizing what was going on in me. What an incredible pride. I, I was in his yard. 
I was hacking at his beautifully manicured grass, and I'm mad at him for being upset with me that I was hacking his yard. Do you hear what's going on? We, humanity, were made to live in God's world. We live in his yard, in his beautiful green earth, and we, we sin in his world. We ignore him in his world. And he doesn't fly off the handle and come piping hot and mad at us. But he does righteously own this world. And when we're faced with him, do we say, what's your problem, man? Don't fly off the handle. Do we really do that before God? Do we say, how dare you? The the thing that we should be realizing is that that question should be turned around. How dare we? How dare I in God's world? Misuse what he's made, misuse his image bearers, misuse my my life, even my own body is not my own. How dare I? And when we start to think in this way, when we realize the story we're a part of, the main character isn't us, it's actually God. There were characters in his story. There's like this roof that's taken off. Francis Schaeffer spoke how every man seems to build a roof over their heads to shield themselves from the tensions of reality. So, for example, we we believe in justice. We believe that there are just and right causes, and we're really passionate about them, but we won't follow that thought out to, if there is justice, there's also injustice. And where did that standard come from? Well, maybe there's a reality of there being a just God who made all things. The reason why we all care about justice, maybe there is a real wrong and right, I've actually broken it. Maybe I'm accountable to this God who made this world in which there's wrong and right. And if I am accountable to him, then, oh no. And the roof comes off. We don't want to go there. We want to suppress that truth and that possibility. So we don't go there. But what a story like the story of Noah does is it throws the roof off and says there is a God and you are accountable to him. And you have done wrong in his world. You've been hacking at his lawn and at his creatures. And so the right question isn't, how dare you, God? It's, Lord, how could I find mercy? Where do I go? What do I do now? And the wonder of this story is that there's incredible grace that remains. And we get this new question, why is there any grace or goodness at all in the world? After all, Adam and Eve were God's representatives over all the earth, and they sinned. Why isn't all the earth gone? Why is there so much good and gladness? It's because God is a God of grace and he's committed to his covenant of grace. And against the backdrop of all of the judgment, there's this beauty of his salvation and his grace that he works through his covenant people. Eight times the word covenant appears in chapters six and eight, or pardon me, and nine. The Lord is working through his covenant promise, his commitment to his world and to his people. God is going to graciously save his people. So we're just gonna see God's grace on display in this passage in his salvation, in his preservation of the world and us, in his gracious purpose and in his gracious peace. So first of all, the gracious deliverance, the gracious salvation. Do you realize this? Noah was saved by grace. Noah and his family were saved by 
grace. It wasn't because Noah was a righteous man. You need to read what comes right before that. The Lord determined to blot out humankind and all flesh with them, but, chapter six, verse eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word for favor is the Hebrew word for grace. Grace. Grace found Noah. And Noah, his whole life then, is framed in this way. The generations of Noah are introduced next. Remember in Genesis, generations are incredibly important and there's structural moments throughout Genesis. You can look for these starting in 2-4 and then in 5-1 and then here and then onward. Every time there's a new section, these are the generations of because God is working his generational promise and he's showing that this is your longing, people. You need to wait for the promise of this offspring who will come through faithful fruit bearing in generations. And so that's why genealogies are a big thing in the Bible (laughs) because God's people are looking and longing for the one who would come and crush the serpent's head and deliver the world from sin and death. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, why? Because grace found him. Blameless in his generation because grace found him. Noah walked with God because grace found him. And we know, we know, we can prove this, just flip a few pages further. Noah walked with God, but he walked imperfectly. In a few pages, you're gonna see him drunk, naked, and foolish. And this guy is the guy that God saved, not because he's perfect, not because of his righteousness, but because the Lord's grace found him. The Lord in his grace would protect him and his family, even on the boat as the storms raging around, 716, and those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord seals him in. The Lord keeps him and his family, even through this disastrous flood. And the Lord gives a a picture of the redemption that would come. Remember, again, Noah is not saved for his own righteousness, but only for the righteousness ultimately of Jesus Christ, the one who would come to save even Noah. Chapter eight, verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and burnt offerings on the altar. Who burns burnt offerings? Sinners burn burnt offerings on altars because they need forgiveness. The offerings are given in their place as a sign, a picture. And we know from the Bible and Hebrews that these, the blood of bulls and goats and birds, that doesn't take away sins, but only Jesus, the one who came to lay down his life, his perfect life in our place, the one who would come, the, the, the one who would truly give rest to the world. He is the one who satisfies all of God's justice on our behalf. So when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man. For... Note this, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. What? That's a non sequitur, God. That doesn't make sense. This doesn't follow from that. I'll never curse the ground again because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth? So you're saying, I'm not going to curse you again because you're bad, because you're evil, because you keep hacking my backyard. It's like God wants to graciously commit himself to saving sinners. It's like God wants there to be enduring possibility of life for sinners. And he wants to put every sign of his gracious provision in the world that we might be drawn to him. 
He says, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is what the theologians call common grace. Every good thing, God's sunshine being poured out upon the backs even of the the just and the unjust, his rains that fall in the fields of the wicked and the good. The Lord provides for his world and it's his mercy, his kindness that draws us in repentance to him. He gives us a chance. He preserves this world and even us in it. There's gracious deliverance. There's gracious preservation of his world. And there's gracious renewed purpose. We find that in chapter nine, verses one through six. Remember, humankind was created in God's image to reflect God in God's world. Humanity shattered that image, but God is still committed to picking up those pieces every generation. And so he blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You've heard those words before in Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful and multiply, Adam and Eve. Well, we know that they didn't multiply perfect images of God as they were called, and their descendants didn't either, far from it. So the Lord recommissions Noah as a sort of new humanity to begin doing the work again. But now there's a blue note because of sin and death in the world. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they're delivered. There's an enmity that now exists between humankind and creation where there was once peace and harmony and goodness in the garden. Now death and sin have creeped in. Fear has creeped in. The Lord provides new food for them but he forbids blood. Note this, starting in verse four. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Later in Leviticus, you'll find this statement that the life is in the blood. Blood is a is sacred symbol of, of, of the life of that which God's created. So we're not to just use it however we would. Certainly not to eat it, the Lord says. Interestingly, in Acts 15, the only thing from the Old Testament law that's still continuing to be enacted very specifically is that the disciples should not eat blood. They should abstain from eating blood. Why? Because it's this creational reality that life belongs to God and not to us. For your lifeblood, I'll require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So now, in our image-bearing, in a sinful world, the world of Cain, the world of Lamech, the world of wickedness and Nephilim who take, violently take women wrongfully, in this world, the very real world in which we live, the world where we hack in our neighbor's yards, we are called to care for our neighbor's life. We're called to care for their humanity, even for their dignity. Jesus says, if you would even call your brother Raka, you are guilty as though you had committed murder. You're liable to judgment. We should regard our fellow human beings' lives. And I want you to hear this, Faith Church, in this moment of pandemic as we're as we're separate and we, we mourn that. But do you regard your neighbor's life? Or do you find yourself saying things like, oh, why would we ever take these steps when that virus only affects people who are over a certain age? 
or it just affects the immunocompromised. Do you hear what you're saying when you say things like that? Just image bearers of God that God created? Just dear blood-bought children of God you're called to love and lay down your life for? Just? And even if it were true that only those groups of people could be affected, that kind of reasoning is saying that your life matters more than others. And what is your life? Your life belongs to God. And he says that you are called to care for the lives of others. So much so, later on in the law, he says, thou shalt not kill. Sixth commandment. Something more like thou shalt not slaughter. It's actually more restrictive than thou shalt not murder. That's a discussion for another day. And because of the Lord's commitment to life, he actually tells the people that they, they shouldn't leave open big holes in the ground that people could fall into because if they do, they're liable for the life of that person. They shouldn't just let their animals run out and gore other people because they're liable for other people's lives. If they have a roof that you can, can access, you should build a wall around it so that people don't fall off because if they fall off and you don't have what's called a parapet or those little walls, you're accountable. You're liable for that life. You didn't take care to protect and preserve a life that's precious to God. This is what it means to be pro-life. You care about other lives besides yourselves, all lives of human beings. You care about preserving them and protecting them, even when it challenges you in your preferences and comforts and conveniences. And so, Faith Church, the Lord has given you gracious, renewed purpose and all people to reflect God's image and to protect life. And he's given a gracious peace. We saw that sign the sign of the covenant that the Lord made with us and every living creature with us and all future generations, the Lord set his bow in the clouds. Everywhere in the Hebrew scriptures where that word for bow occurs, it's talking about a war bow. The Lord was making war upon sin on the earth and he won. And having conquered, he hung up his bow and it's as though he's saying it is finished for now. And every time we see the rainbow, that beautiful rainbow in the clouds, it's a sign to us and it's a sign to God of this promise that he's made, this commitment that he won't quit on the earth no matter how bad we get. His covenant will continue. He'll still have an invitation for us to come home and find grace in him. And we even notice that that bow is no longer pointed down, but it's pointed up. And people have wondered throughout church history whether this was a sign of the grace that would come, that the Lord himself would take the arrow into his own heart, the judgment that you and I deserve, he would take it himself so that this world could be spared, that it could be made new, and that all who would find refuge in Jesus, the one who would come and take this arrow into his heart, all of God's divine wrath, his righteous judgment, that we could find safety in him. And that's what 1 Peter says, that Christ also suffered once for sins. Chapter three, verse 18 of 1 Peter. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. His life for ours is perfect, divine life, fully God and fully man, given in our place that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now the passage gets interesting. 
But this passage helps us see where we can run, where we can turn. Where do you turn in a world that you have misused? You have turned away from the reality. You've suppressed the truth that God is your maker. Even Christians, we do this. We conveniently forget that God is there. At times when we want to do what we want to do. Where do we run? Where do we turn? We turn and we run to Christ who died in our place to bring us to God, to make us safe in his presence. This passage gets interesting. The Lord was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit and and spiritually in his resurrection glory. In some sense, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Who are the spirits in prison? Probably the Nephilim who are mentioned in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And he proclaims a victory over them, God's victory over all those opposed to him and his creational goodness and his plan. He is the victor and they have lost because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. God patiently waited. Remember, he's not flying off the handle in the flood. Every sin, he's patiently waiting, allowing graciously for this ark to be built so that some could be saved. Eight souls brought safely through water. And verse 21 says this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism now saves you. That makes us nervous, some of us. Some of us say, aha, well, now I'm right. I found that one verse that says baptism saves you. But what is it actually saying here? Baptism, what does it correspond to? It says it corresponds to this. This, the thing that is a a grammatical antecedent, forgive the the big words, the thing that makes sense to connect with that in the previous verse is water. And what is that water that baptism corresponds to? It is the floodwaters of God's judgment against the world that had opposed him. Those floodwaters that Noah's family and those eight souls were brought through, baptism corresponds to this. And so when you are baptized, when you come and you take refuge in Jesus Christ, and you take refuge with with all the believers together in Jesus Christ and you're baptized into a, a community of believers, imperfect. It's like you're in a new ark. The Lord has welcomed you to the new ark of his resurrection life where you can find shelter from wrath, safety from what you deserve for your sin. Baptism corresponds to this, this judgment and that's a wonder, isn't it? How often do we do this at our Easter baptism services, talk about the judgment of God that is stored up for all those outside the ark, all of those who don't come and receive God's welcome and his safety inside the ark. Now, I want you to remember, here's the hard thing. If we come and we take refuge in Jesus, you're gonna be on the ark with people like Noah. You're gonna be on the ark with imperfect people. This ark is a safe place for actual sinners. And it's even a place where people who won't ultimately endure come. People like Ham, Noah's son, who was cursed, who rebelled against his father and dishonored his father and turned against God. Ham, who was cursed, was on the ark. The Lord would even let people like that be in his community. And in that community, hear the saving promises of Jesus. And all who 
look to Christ and endure to the end will be saved. And that's why we know that baptism saving you here isn't talking about final salvation because baptism brings you into a community with people that may not ultimately be saved, but it brings you into the shelter where God's promises are made known, where people identify with Jesus Christ and with his resurrection, with his authority. And in this community, there is hope and purpose, and we hear of God's gracious provision for us in spite of our sin. It's an appeal to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I invite you to to appeal to him today, believer or non-believer, look to Christ. If you've been baptized, look back to the promises offered there and the safety the Lord would offer you. If you've not yet been baptized, we invite you. We invite you to consider that. Come and talk to me, reach out to us. I'd love to talk with you about the safety that the Lord offers you through Jesus Christ. He has not quit on you and he will not quit on this world. He's offering you this lifeline in the midst of the flood. And I invite you to take it. I invite you to take up the Lord Jesus Christ as your only salvation. This is a story, a story of hope because the Lord will never quit on his gracious covenant. So let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, our savior. I do thank you for refuge that's possible in him. I thank you for imperfect church community where sinners like me are welcome. I pray that you would draw many to know him, to know this safety and to know your goodness. Lord, I I just thank you. It's in your name we pray, amen.